sermon text this morning comes from Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us, his people, for our good. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Let's give our attention to its reading. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is the word of the Lord. What a joy it is to gather together on Christmas morning, send you Christmas greetings from, from my family to yours, especially from my wife, our youngest, who is a, has been a bit of a bear recently, decided uh, that he was going to cry in bed till about 1 a.m., so he is uh, fast asleep, and we figured it best to, to let him sleep, otherwise Michelle would just be carrying him around while he's sleeping here. Uh, but she sends her greetings. This is probably her favorite day of the year. She's uh, pulled me along quite a bit in that since we were married. I was a bit of a Grinch when uh, we first got married and have grown to love this day and to love the celebration of the Incarnation and to look forward. And that was something I didn't quite grasp when I was growing up, that the Advent season is really a time of, of celebration that Christ has come, And the expectation, the waiting into which we enter is a waiting for the second coming. Our king has come and he's coming again. And of course, a lot of things flew over my head as a young young kid. That was one of them. And so I've learned to to love this day. Merry Christmas to all of you. And uh, hope and pray that you find it to be a blessed uh, Christmas this year. What motivates a bride and a groom to... Make all the preparations for the wedding day. What, uh, all of the things that go into it, what motivates them? Well, there may be many things that motivate them, both good and bad things. But hopefully, chiefly, it is love. It is the love that they share for one another that, that motivates them to, to get to that day, to make it a special day, to enter into the beginnings of that marriage relationship uh, the right way. Jacob's seven years, his first seven years of service, we read in Genesis, because he was expecting to marry Rachel. He said that seven years of service seemed but a few days because of the love he had for Rachel. There's something I want us to think about today, and and we'll get to Christmas. We'll think about all of those themes. Perhaps it's a a bit of of a newer way for us to think about this. I want us to think that love and a wedding... 
a particular wedding, the wedding of the Lamb. Love and a wedding are what motivate us in our service to God. As we look and we see God's grace, we see his love poured out upon us as we think about it in this season, the grace that was given in Jesus Christ. And then looking forward to the the marriage feast of the Lamb, the bride of Christ will be joined to her bridegroom once and for all in unending and unimaginable joy. These are the things that motivate us in our love and our service to God and to our fellow man. So as we saw in Titus 2, that the grace of God has appeared. The first reason that we feast today, this is a, a feasting day, this is a day of celebration, is because grace has come materially, physically, really and truly in Jesus Christ. To say that grace has appeared, we can take that, of course, quite literally. Jesus was a man who was seen on this earth. He continues to be a man in heaven. And he is explicit evidence that God's grace has come. He healed the sick. He taught the ignorant. He restored the wayward, all for the sake of grace. He is the embodiment of grace. Christmas, in many ways, is an earthy thing. There is stuff, there is material that is bound up in our celebration of Christmas. And there were in the same region shepherds abiding in their fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Shepherds, fields, flocks. There is stuff, there's an earthiness to Christmas that comes down uh, to, to the ground level. I, I speak a lot about heavenly mindedness and how our attention is to be upwards towards heaven, but that is not to dismiss the importance and the relevancy of material things. Uh, Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, is our reminder that God redeems that which is material, that which has stuff. He's bringing all things to a great consummation where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. We won't be simply uh, just floating around without material. There will be stuff that we read in Isaiah chapter 11. You read of the, the peace of the new heavens and the new earth. The wise men come from the east and they bring gifts. And so all of these things, this earthiness uh, to Christmas teaches us something. But of course, there is a, a heavenliness that is joined to that. The shepherds and the fields and the flocks are all of a sudden greeted with a host of angels. Right? The heavenly comes to the earth. Christ, the one from heaven, comes to earth. And so to begin to celebrate Christmas rightly, is not a, a, we don't dismiss all of the things, the, the ribbons and the trees and the meals and even the, the gifts that we bring. These are all good things when they are oriented rightly, when there is a, a heavenly orientation to all of these things. Why do we give gifts? Because God has given the greatest gift. Why do we feast together? Why do we celebrate? Because one day we will be feasting with our God. So all of the the things about Christmas that sometimes we say, "Is, is this really okay to give attention to? Yes, it is. But in the proper way, in the proper order, to have it God and heavenliness and heavenly mindedness having us draw all of our attention upwards and making sure that it's all oriented and pointed towards him. But grace has appeared, and perhaps we ask why. We, we kind of know that answer. Well, God's love, God loved the world so much, he sent his son. But let's lean into that a little bit. Why has grace appeared in 
Jesus Christ? Well, because grace is in the heart of God. Grace is in the heart of Christ. There is a a fountain of love and mercy and grace that is in our God and in Jesus Christ that looks for an outlet. And so if God loves his glory, which he does, God loves to glorify himself. And this is certainly why God has created the world. But how does he glorify himself? We spoke about this the other night. God glorifies himself by making known his mercy and his grace, by showing that he is a God who saves and redeems and forgives. So if he loves to glorify his name, and he loves to forgive, and he glorifies himself by pouring out his mercy and his grace, then we can say that this world was created for his glory as an outlet for his grace, as a place to bestow his love and his forgiveness. Jonathan Edwards was one of the the best minds that we have in the history of the church to think through this very issue. had a whole book called On the, the End for Which God Created the World. He says this, The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end, that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse to whom he might open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, of love, of grace that was in his heart. And in this way, that God might be glorified. That he might have somewhere to pour out that immense fountain of condescension and love and grace that was in his heart. All the world was created so that God might glorify himself in his grace and so that Christ would have a bride prepared for him. We take comfort in that God, while he operates for his own glory, His heart is that he would be glorified in the salvation of sinners. So we feast today because we know that this is true. That we were created for Christ. And Christ was made man to pour out his grace. We read also that grace brings salvation to all men. To all men. We celebrate that grace has come to all men. Most of us, I'm sure probably mostly have Gentile blood, and so we can take a peculiar joy in the fact that Christ's birth was for the salvation of the nations, the wise men coming from the east, perhaps Medo-Persian, there are astrologers, there's mystery bound up in that, but we're at least finding out Christ is a savior for the world. They pay homage to him by bringing their gifts. It's kind of fun, but... Most of this is lost to history if we try to go way back. What what were my ancestors like a thousand years ago? But it is probably a good exercise at times to think about our ancestors. Hopefully yours were a little bit less barbarian than mine. The Norwegian bloodline doesn't have a lot of uh, virtue and piety to speak of going back a thousand years or so. But it's fun to think about how grateful our ancestors must have been in those first few generations of knowing the gospel of grace. For those who knew the darkness whence they had come. They had come out of the darkness into the light of God's grace, into the light of Christ. We have this immense blessing, but sometimes it becomes a curse of living in a thoroughly Christianized society. We have many that would scoff at that, but it is true. Our society is this way, first and foremost, for one reason. Because of Christ and because of Christianity. 
the way that our society functions. You can see the evidence of the Christian gospel everywhere, even in this age that largely uh, would scoff at that. There are, are stories that we still hear about now that show the kind of radical change that it brings in the human heart and, and the kind of change that it brings to communities. There are tribal accounts in places like Africa where tribes that warred together for centuries, all of a sudden the gospel of grace comes in and there's a, a large conversion in both tribes and they agree to uh, peace and they turn their swords into plowshares and their spears in, into pruning hooks. There is a, a, a grace and a love and a peace that flows forth from the gospel. And that's a wonderful reminder to us. Grace has appeared and it has appeared to all men. It wasn't just for the Israelites. It was to go to the ends of the earth. Christ is the desire of the nations. What he gives to us is that which satisfies every longing heart that, that comes to him. Grace has appeared. It has appeared for all men. Grace teaches us, we see in this passage. In verse 12, grace teaches us. That doesn't, that sounds a little bit off to us, perhaps at first. Law is what teaches us, right? Rules teach us. How can it be that grace teaches us? One pastor puts it this way. It says, grace presents us with the strongest motives to obedience. What chains bind faster and closer than love? The love of God, the grace of God is what binds us to him. The early church father Augustine put it this way in his confessions. He says this prayer, O oh my God, let me with gratitude remember and confess unto you your mercies bestowed upon me. And he says this, let my bones be steeped in your love and let them say, who is like you, O Lord? You have loosed my bonds. I will offer unto you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I no longer desire to be more certain of you, but more steadfast in you. Let my bones be steeped in your love, and I will offer unto you a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I desire not to be more certain of you. I desire to be more steadfast in you. Love is the greatest motivator in the world. And where else do we have love with the kind of love than the kind of love that we see at Christmas and the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The army that is filled with soldiers who love their country is an army that will not run away when danger is imminent. Armies that have the toughest times are those constantly dealing with desertion because the soldiers believe what they're fighting for isn't worth it. It's not worth their lives. This is why the Apostle Paul is so desperate for his churches to see and to understand the love of Christ and the heart of Christ. Because if they see that love, if they grasp it, if they embrace it for themselves, they will love him back with obedience and devotion. So Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, I pray that you may know and that so Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend, that you may have the strength to know, to see, to understand with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That those four terms, breadth, length, height, depth, it's almost he's saying it's like a, it's like a structure of God's love. And to see how immense it is before you, that you may enter that love and live 
in the mystery of that love, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Samuel Rutherford said this. He said, I see Christ's love as so kingly that it will not abide an equal. It must have a throne all alone in the soul. And if it has a throne all alone in the soul, then what will that mean for our lives? If the love of Christ has a throne all alone in the soul, what will that mean for our lives? This is why Paul moves forward so naturally in Ephesians to call the, the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's why at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. On the one hand, God is asserting his authority over them. Don't forget who I am and what I've done. But on the other hand, he's saying, I have loved you. I redeemed you. I brought you out of Egypt. And I have set you in this land. Now live according to my law. His love binds us to him. The acts of redemption bind our hearts to God. I love the way there's this Puritan prayer that I saw this week and I, I appreciated what it said. It said, O lover to the uttermost, speaking to Christ, O lover to the uttermost, may I read the meltings of thy heart to me in the manger of thy birth, in the garden of thy agony, in the cross of thy suffering, in the tomb of thy resurrection, in the heaven of thy intercession. Bold in this thought, I defy my adversary. I tread down his temptations. I resist his schemings. I renounce the world. I am valiant for truth. I see the meltings of the heart of Christ in the manger, in the garden, on the cross, in the tomb, in his resurrection, and in heaven. With all of those things, with that thought near to me, I defy my adversary. I tread down his temptations. I resist all his schemings and I renounce the world. Grace teaches us, we see in Titus 2, to say no or to deny desires that are ungodly and worldly in a sinful way. There's a battle ongoing, a battle for the landscape of our lives. There are sinful desires that seek to pull us in one direction, direction away from our Lord, away from that which is proper, and the grace of God that God pours into our lives that pulls us the other way. There's a battle for the landscape of our hearts and for the landscape of our lives. This is the battle of freedom. True human freedom is the ability to say no to the desires, the sinful desires that we're confronted with. And we see that this only comes by the grace of God. We say no to those things and we say yes to living self-controlled and upright and righteous lives before God and neighbor. Soberly, righteously, godly. Really, it's self-control first. The the foundation of all virtue and piety and obedience is self-control. And that comes through the grace of God as we see. And then righteousness is, it seems to point more in the direction of righteousness before men. And then godly is the, the, our pursuit of holiness before God. So you have self-control and then the righteousness before men, godliness and obedience before God encapsulates really, it's a nice encapsulation of all of uh, the duties that we have to live in this life. To, in a controlled way, by God's grace, serve him and pursue holiness and serve our neighbor and love those 
that God brings into our lives. Grace teaches us because the love of God, the grace of God, binds our hearts to him. And our heart animates all that we do in a way that uh, just law on its own would not be able to do. It needs the love of God, the grace of God that animates it and gives us joy to look at the commandments of God and to want to serve him through them. As we talked at the beginning, there are few earthly motivators that are like the wedding day, especially for the bride. It seems like almost everything in a woman's life can be put on hold as there are so many things that occupy her time and her efforts, the flowers, the wardrobe, decorations, dieting, showers, letters to be written. It all becomes quite uh, extensive, particularly in our, in our age. And there can be bad reasons for this, as we said before, but hopefully uh, a large part of it is the love that binds her to her groom and she's getting ready for her groom. She's preparing herself to make the one transition in her life from under her father to under her husband. And when, when we see in Titus that Jesus gives himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession, at least part of the picture that he is painting is that of a bride. Christ came to have and to get for himself, to win for himself a bride. One pastor puts it this way, a bit uh, interesting way to put it. He says, all of the Bible can be summed up in one sentence. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Kill the dragon, get the girl. This is what Jesus did. He comes to slay the enemy and to receive the bride that has been prepared for him. Revelation 19, we read this. Or at least we read as we look forward to the bride joining together with the bridegroom. Revelation 19.5, from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Really, that's what this life is about for us. Are we getting ready for that marriage feast? Are we getting ready for that ultimate and final and consummate wedding day? Have we joined ourselves to the church, the bride of Christ? Are we in union with our Savior even now by faith? Are we loving Him? Are we seeking to glorify Him? Are we glorying in His grace? Are we looking at His love which binds our hearts to Him? Titus says we are to have a zeal for good works. We are to seek to grow in grace. We are to let the love of Christ shape our love and our devotion. This is what Advent is really about for us on this side of the cross and resurrection. It's not trying to turn back the redemptive clock and try to act like Christ has not been born yet. He has, he's come. He has come his first time. We celebrate that he has come, but we 
feast and we celebrate all of Christmas season and we remind ourselves that we are waiting for him to come again. We're between those times. He has come and he is coming. And the fact that he is coming, as Titus says, is our blessed hope. That is the blessed hope, the wedding day, where we look forward to being joined with our bridegroom. Our bridegroom is coming. Let us make ourselves ready as the bride of Christ. Let us live soberly and righteously and godly. Let us say no to ungodliness by his grace. Let us look forward to that day. The stuff that the Lord allows us to enjoy, may it be oriented towards him. May it remind us that ultimately moth and rust will destroy many things in this world. But that which will remain is Christ and his kingdom and his glory forever. I'll return to uh, Jonathan Edwards and read a bit from him as we close this morning. He says, In that resurrection morning, when the Son of Righteousness shall appear in the heavens, shining in all his brightness and glory, he will come forth as a bridegroom. He shall come in the glory of his Father with all his holy angels. That will be a joyful meeting of this glorious bridegroom and bride indeed. Then the bridegroom will appear in all his glory without any veil. And the saints will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father and at the right hand of their redeemer. Then will come the time when Christ will sweetly invite his spouse to enter in with him into the palace of his glory, which he had been preparing for her from the foundation of the world and shall, as it were, take her by the hand and lead her in with him. And this son and daughter of God shall present themselves before the father and Christ shall say, here am I. And the children which thou hast given me. And they both shall receive the Father's blessing. And shall from then on rejoice together. In consummate, uninterrupted, immutable, everlasting glory. In the love and embraces of each other. And joint enjoyment of the love of the Father. May that be our blessed hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, fill us with joy that our Lord and King has come and fill us with anticipation and even joy in waiting that he's coming again. May we make ourselves ready as your grace binds us to you, as we say no to ungodliness and worldly desires, as we seek to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. Help us by your grace to prepare ourselves for that day that we may look up and see our Savior and King coming, not shrink, shrink from him in shame, but be filled with joy to see that he has come to claim us for his own. We pray this in his name. Amen.